0: everybody, this is Kim C, and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King, a podcast that takes a deep dive into Stephen King's lesser-known novels and short stories. Today, we're going to be talking about Lisey's story. And I know it may be a bit of a deja vu moment for a few of you because I did already record this episode. However, I just was having nightmarish panic about some of the quality of it and I just couldn't live with myself not redoing it and giving it another shot. Still cracking some eggs here with um, getting the podcast off the ground. So I'm gonna get my sea legs here pretty soon but I really wanted to make sure this one had some solid footing. Uh, This book is too important to me. It's too awesome. It's too good. Um, There's just too much good stuff to allow it to remain sounding like it was recorded in a war zone. That's not uh, not my bag, not my wheelhouse. So I'm gonna dive in with some um, with a different recording, and for the most part, if you heard the first one, it's going to be exactly the same. I'm going to hit the same areas, the same points. There might be just one or two nuances of difference. Um, I don't. I never really know what's going to come out of my brain sometimes. So there might be some magic. I don't know. Um, but for the most part, let's uh, let's dive in and. Um, explore the sort of the four sections I'm gonna take a look at with this book. Similar to the Under the Dome uh, breakdown, I'm gonna have an intro. I'm gonna talk about what's unique about the book. We're gonna read an excerpt from the text. I'm gonna transition to heroes, villains, and honorable mentions. I'm also going to discuss what's working in the novel and what falls a little flat, what's not working. And then we'll have some concluding thoughts on whether I think it's worth the journey or maybe shelving it for a little while. Um, But yeah, so let's get started. I appreciate those of you who give this a second listen. Maybe you'll get something new, uh, and uh, hopefully it's a lot better and stronger than the first go-around. I definitely just felt it had to be done, especially because this novel is becoming a limited series. I'm not entirely sure on the network, but uh, I think it was the other day, I just watched this awesome live um, YouTube session with Stephen King and John Grisham and it was so fun and the two of them together are just fantastic and Stephen said that uh, he, uh, John Grisham asked him about projects and what do you have going on and he had mentioned that Lisey's story had just concluded filming and so i thought that was pretty exciting um all i know about the limited series is that julianne moore is our lead actress playing Lisi clive owen is playing her husband Scott Landon and then there's a a creepy guy uh, who I don't know the name of playing Jim Dooley and um, but I am super excited for the show mostly because this book is bananas.com it's nuts it's absolutely bonkers and I have no idea how they're gonna adapt it Personally, I, I, either there's just going to be drastic changes and it's going to be nothing like the novel, or it's going to be a drug trip because that's how this, um, that's how this book reads, guys. It's, uh, it's real trippy, um, in good ways, but trippy, um, so let's sort of dive in with some introductory info. Uh, this is quoted as Stephen King's best written book, and he himself has, has said that, which is very, very intriguing. I can definitely see why he says that, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about the writing and the language used because that's the star of the show in this novel. But. It's also one of the most challenging Stephen King books I've read in my 20 plus book adventure, just on getting into the plot alone. So we'll talk about that in a little bit in greater detail, but this was published in 2006. It's a little over 500 pages and the roots of this story are about a hospital stay that Stephen King had shortly um, in the rehabilitation stage post getting hit by a van in 1999. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys know or knew extensively he was somewhere in Maine and uh, a van turned a sharp corner and crashed into Stephen King and he was really really almost almost killed and critically injured and required a lot of rehabilitation and I guess one or two years after the accident happened in 1999 and around 2002 he had a lung infection that just turned into pneumonia and required a pretty lengthy hospital stay so while he was in the hospital his wife Tabitha uh, just decided to use the time while he was away to redo his office. And so when Steve was released, he got home and there was just, his office was being renovated and there were boxes and boxes and boxes and rows and rows and rows, and rows of paper and books and awards and just all of this stuff. And he had this idea of what it would be like if Steve, Steve passed away, if he passed away before Tabitha, and Tabitha would have to sort of clear out and handle all of this. And so it got her thinking about it. And then he wondered if there might be somebody really sinister, who would maybe think there was treasure or unpublished material or something worth harming Tabitha over. And so that was how the story of Lisi's story came to be. Uh, This was, I think it's a story that's pretty close to the bone for Tabitha, is what he said. Even though in the actual novel at the end, for the author's note, he says it's really not about her, but... I don't know, reader, I'll let you, I'll let you be the judge. I think that this is a very intimate story about marriage and love, and, um, King is pretty, pretty sweet when it comes to, to talking about his wife. They've been married a really long time, actually way longer than Scott and Lisey were, which was about 25 years in in the story. Um, but for having looked at this book, I read it about two months ago. I uh, really had the opportunity to let it gel in my mind for a little bit and I uh, was listening to other um, reviews on it and reading about other Stephen King fans who had let their friends read this book and it was the first Stephen King book they'd ever read. And that shocked me to my soul because no, guys, please do not give this to a friend if they've never read Stephen King before. I think the reason why those people did it is because technically speaking, this book isn't very scary. So as one of the big things we're going to be dealing with in the podcast is how we have two camps of Stephen King lovers and haters. We've got the people that are so used to the thrill ride of Stephen King and being terrified and always, you know, craving a scary story at all times. And then you have the people that dismiss him because of that and think that he's just a one-trick pony who only writes creepy paranormal uh, horror fiction. And so what we're trying to do is blaze a new trail where he's both and not only is he both. He's the best at both. He's the best at everything. He's the king. So, but this novel, guys, is oh man. This is senior capstone level thesis work. This is um oh, I do not give this to your friends if they've never read Stephen King before because they're going to hate Stephen King. They're going to hate life. They're gonna not have fun because um, this one's tricky, guys. This one's a little tricky to get into based on the language alone. It's it's like a puzzle book. It's like really complex in terms of, um, it, it's like it's written in code. And so I, I highly recommend. It isn't very scary, yes. But this is not a first-time book for a Stephen King reader, unless that reader is really open to experimental novels. I would highly classify this novel as incredibly experimental. Uh, It's trippy. There's a lot of unexpected, strange, meandering twists and randomness. Um, Once you can dig your heels in, it is a rewarding experience, but please don't give this to your friends. This is super advanced, guys. I really believe it's advanced um, and highly recommend that this is not a first book that you give to Stephen King fans unless you like duct tape his name on the cover and get a sharpie and block out his name on every page. That would be what I recommend, <laughs> so um, I yeah, please, please let's let's not do that. So going forward, I'm going to not have definitive spoilers. I'm gonna dance around it. So if you have not read Lisi's story, please um, tread carefully because I'm gonna do my best to be very vague. Uh, I'm not gonna talk about. Super concrete details of how something uh, went down, but I am going to break down big topics of discussion and things of that nature. So I'm gonna do my best to not do full spoilers, but you're gonna learn a lot about the book in this discussion. So if that's something that you want to save for a later time, definitely uh, hold off on reading this until you're all done with Lacey's story. But if you've just finished the book, let's dive in together with um, with uh, what's unique. Uh, but before I do that, I always forget about the summary of the novel. Um, so In a quick sentence or two, Lisey's story is about Lisi and Scott Landon. Scott Landon is a best-selling novelist and Lisi is his wife. They've been married 25 years and when we begin the story, Scott has been dead for two years and Lisey's in a manageable zone of grief where she is cleaning out his office and cataloging everything and determining what she's going to send to schools and libraries and people who really treasure Scott Landon's work. Um, And then uh, as she's doing that, there's a sort of piranha-esque person who's our villain, uh, Jim Dooley, who uh, comes into Lisi's life wanting to get some of Scott's unpublished material. He believes that there is, despite Lisey saying, no, there's there's nothing unpublished. There's nothing left for, you know, Scott didn't leave anything unpublished. But Jim Dooley's not hearing it and um, goes after Lisey and causes a lot of conflict. Um, and so that's the sort of... Um, the, the premise, the synopsis of the novel is Lisi have to de- uh, dealing with the aftermath of her husband's death. She's reliving the, um, moments where they met, where they, um, fell in love, and the, the difficult parts in their marriage, so it's a little bit of a slideshow and flashbacks, and then there's also a little bit of flash-forwards in, um, uh a lot of mystical stuff that happens so uh that's that's a little summary and then let's talk about uh what's unique and what's working in the text What's the most unique in Lacey's story? I have it in giant, all capital letters, is the language. The language is the star of this book, guys. It's one of the reasons why I believe it's such a tricky book to to read and to break down because it's very much written like a, like a puzzle book. Um, it reminded me when I first went through it, if any of you guys remember the novel House of Leaves or if you've ever heard of it, That one is such a really fun, trippy book. I forget the name. He's got, like, a very Polish last name. I forget um, how to pronounce it. But House of Leaves was about... uh, I don't even remember what it was about. I just know that you would have to put the book in the mirror to read certain sentences. Uh, Many sentences would be upside down. Many would just be chopped up so it's just random letters on the page. It was such a puzzle book experience. This isn't as puzzly as that, but the language is definitely its own um, code of intimate craziness between Scott and Lisi. So some of the examples that we have um, from the story uh, are bad gunky, bull, strap it on, which I know sounds a little x-rated, but it means it's a euphemism for get it together, chin up, stay strong um put a put a good face on and then they even have an acronym sowisa which is s o w i s a and it stands for strap on whenever it seems appropriate or strap it on whenever it seems appropriate so they would tell each other that scott would just tell lisa or Lisi, you know sowisa baby love and she yeah so one of those. Uh, we've got blood bull, booyah moon, the long boy, smuck, which is (laughs) instead of everyone's favorite F word, we have smuck, smuck this, smuck you. (laughs) It's, it's, there's a learning curve for sure. We have Inkunks, yum yum tree, the African representing the Afghan, um, All kinds of of little things like that. Um, I'm actually gonna read you a piece of the text right now that I think kind of encompasses some of those words as well as highlights the very very challenging narration of the novel. So I have the American hardcover version with me right now and I am in the middle of the page, 330. So I'm gonna read this chunk where um, Lisey's speaking, and it's just nutballs in uh, a very cool, puzzling way. Okay, here we go. It's still there, she said. She was gripping the handle of the shovel again. The way through is still there. It must be because he prepared for all of this, left me a smacking bull hunt to get ready. Then yesterday morning in bed with Amanda. That was you, Scott. I know it was. You said I had a blood bowl coming, and a prize, and a drink. You said, and you called me baby love. So where are you now? Where are you when I need you to get me over? No answer, but the ticking of the clock on the wall. Close your eyes, he'd said that too. Visualize, see as well as you can it will help, Lacey. You're a champ at this. I better be, she told the empty, sunny, Scottless bedroom. Oh, honey, I just better be. So, all of those words that I kind of mentioned, there's even more so than the example I provided, but they're just strung together in this intimate language between Scott and Lacey. And, it it takes a little while to get that language under your belt. And even still, the narration is so artistic and experimental that it's bumpy. It's bumpy a lot of times. And it took me, took me some time to, to dig my heels in and, and, uh, flow with it. But the language is, oh my goodness, guys, it's, it's such a, it's the huge, big, uh, giant aspect of the novel that is the most unique about it. So I, I really loved sort of underlining all of those words and kind of analyzing where where Steve might've got them and uh, how they just become larger than life in the text. So the other thing that's really, really working in the what's unique portion is magical realism. So I really believe it is magical realism rather than the supernatural or the paranormal because of how subtle it creeps up. It's really very all of a sudden and there's no transition. There's no sort of foreshadowing for it, And it reminds me so much of the magical realism we see in some of the South American novelists uh, like Gabriel Garcia Marquez. If you guys have ever read 100 Years of Solitude or Love in the Time of Cholera, there's some really uh, great examples of magical realism in that where all of a sudden uh, a, a room is full of butterflies and, you know, it's just completely normal, um, just magic and randomness all around. Laura Esquivel uh, and her novel Like Water for Chocolate. So when I was reading the text, I I really connected with those. Um, Only I think in those novels, the tone is a little bit less ominous than in Lisi's story but uh, this still kind of those strong images of magical realism. And one of the biggest examples of magical realism is the fact that there's a physical place in the novel Lacey's story called Booyah Moon. And this is all of a sudden a dreamlike world that is floral and tropical and... Scott and Lisi go there um and they get there sort of mentally transporting themselves um you find out in the text that Scott has undergone a very very painful childhood and he would go to this place to escape that childhood. And when I was first reading the text, I just thought it was metaphorical. And I thought that this wasn't real. This was like a mental safe haven for Scott. But then he actually takes Lisey there. um, And they're physically there. Um, And it's a really, really trippy um, place where it's, there's a magic pool that provides healing and sort of peace. And then if it gets dark, things are poisonous. There's monsters there. So Booyah Moon is, I think, the big chunk of this novel where you as the reader are trucking along. You're like, okay, this is about a marriage. Okay, I'm on board. And then all of a sudden they transport themselves to this magical tropical beach place. And they're wandering around and you're just like, what? what just happened? So... That's. We're going to talk about that in greater detail here because it's such a huge part of the novel, but the magical realism is very heavy and very thick, and it's, uh, it's very unique in this novel. Um, the other aspect that is really strong are objects. Um, so I couldn't help but approach this topic much like a video gamer would. Um, I'm not a gamer. I appreciate video games, and I'm super old school. Like I only really like the cute kid games, and I have the attention span of a fruit fly, so I don't really play them for very long. But when I was reading the novel, some of these objects are kind of floating, uh, not necessarily in the text, but in my imagination, these objects are so definitive and special and essential that they are very much like a floating hovering item in a game where the main character you you walk your little guy and he grabs the item and it's just floating there for him. Um, The objects in this story are super powerful like that. Um, We have a silver shovel that was gifted to Scott at a groundbreaking um, at a college library and Lisey uses it to smack the gun out of someone who is going to, who shot Scott, and that shovel becomes this totem for Lisey. She uses it very much um, as a, a, a conduit, as a catalyst in the story, and so when she's got that shovel, it's very much like a weapon and also this magical item just sort of hovering there for her. We also have um, a blanket that's another transporting thing, and it's called, it's a yellow Afghan, but Lisi uh, or Scott calls it the African, kind of like not not using the right word Afghan, so he says African, but it means Afghan. So that's what I mean by the code part of it, a little tricky. That's another sort of powerful object. And then we have a silver bell that is in Booyah Moon, which is connected to um, Paul's deceased, or pardon me, Scott's deceased brother, Paul. So... These little objects, when they come up, they just are in bright light, and and they take on this larger-than-life presence, and that's kind of cool. It, it makes the the text really alive and very visual for the reader because all of a sudden you're you're dialed in and you are um, looking for this object in your mind and you're really imagining it, every detail, every angle. So that was really cool, and so. Uh, those are some of the uh, the areas that I feel is really unique uh, about the text. So what I'd like to do now is I have one more excerpt that I want to read for you that highlights a little bit about Booyah Moon, and this is actually really close to where we just read. Um, and uh, I want to read this one for you because I think it does a really good job of indicating the duality of booyah moon and this is starting at the bottom of page 330 and it's the first paragraph of 331 in the american hardcover what time is it there little Lisi? oh not the hour i don't mean that but is it daytime or nighttime scott always knew he said he did anyway but you're not scott no, but she remembered one of his favorite rock and roll tunes. Nighttime is the right time. In Booyah Moon, nighttime was the wrong time, when smells turned rotten and food could poison you. Nighttime was when the laughers came out—things that ran on all fours but sometimes stood up like people and looked around. And there were other things, worse things, things like Scott's Long Boy. It's very close, honey. That's what he told her as he lay under the hot Nashville sun on the day when she had been sure he was dying. I hear it taking its meal. She had tried to tell him she didn't know what he was talking about. He had pinched her and told her not to insult his intelligence or her own. Because I'd been there. Because I'd heard the laughers and believed him when he said there were worse things waiting. And there were. I saw the thing he was talking about. I saw it in 1996 when I went to Booyah Moon to bring him home. Just its side, but that was enough. All right, thank you for listening to my story segments. So let's transition to heroes, villains, and honorable mentions. <laughs> Okay, so before I talk about um, Jim Julie and some of the other standout guys, uh, one of the very big themes we have in Stephen King works is the, um, the best-selling author and the obsessed fan. So we really uh, get to see that here in this um, recording, or pardon me, <laughs> we, we get to see that in this story a lot. Um, for example, we have the most powerful um, incarnation of the obsessed fan and the writer, which is uh, Misery. So Annie Wilkes, there's a uh, no, no, uh, forgetting the infamous notorious Annie Wilkes and Paul Sheldon in Misery. We also have this theme, um, throughout in several Stephen King novels. Um, we've got Morris Bellamy and I believe Rubenstein is the author that he stalks in the latest, uh, Bill Hodge's trilogy, which is end of, um, pardon me, it was Finder's Keepers. So Finder's Keepers, we see that again, and it's throughout Stephen's work. Um, We'll have a best-selling or successful novelist and uh, the obsessed fan. So that's a big, big theme that we see throughout. And so my villain that I'd like to mention first, of course, is Jim Dooley. He really channels that um that uh obsessed fan however it's slightly different because Jim Dooley uh I believe in the story he's written as an ex-con he's from the south but I don't know if he is a fan of Scott Landon as much as he's a treasure hunter and he believes that Scott Landon's work or the unpublished manuscripts that he believes exists is um, treasure, and so he goes hunting for it. And he's he's more of like a greedy treasure hunter. And unfortunately, not giving too much away, but I, I'm mentioning him as our big villain, even though he's more of a puppet for another aspect of those who want Scott's um, unpublished works. But he, there is a little bit of violence that happens with Lisi and the word I'm going to use is mutilate. There is a, a scene of which some mutilation, which mutilation is such a horrifying word. It's such a strong word, but I think it's applicable. I really think that it, it's working for for that. Um, so if, if you're sensitive to any sort of um, violence against women, uh, please keep in mind it's a small scene and it does balance out where uh, it's, uh, it's, it's very much like, you know, how we tell kids when they get really scared, like it'll get happy again, or it'll be okay. It's going to be okay. Um, so, and I would like to know that going in, uh, cause sometimes really, um, a vulnerable woman and you know, that, that's, that's rough sometimes. So there's a little bit of mutilation there, but, um, it's going to be okay. And, but Jim Dooley is, is definitely our villain. He's creepy and spooky and um, I just feel, really felt the tension and the fear for Lisi because uh, she is all alone. She is all alone. She is... I don't know if I mentioned this previously, but what's interesting about Lisi is she's at the tail end of her youth, she's almost 60, so she's not a spring chicken. So for her, this is, you know, she's a vulnerable lady and she's by herself. And so that was was a little bit um, interesting and at the same time very, very emotional. So the other villain that I want to mention is Sparky Landon, which is Scott's father. And uh, we have some flashback scenes for Scott's childhood. They are pretty unsettling. Um, If you are sensitive to any sort of child abuse stuff, um, keep in mind that is there. It's not heavily gone into, but... Um, it's there. What makes it tolerable or bearable is the writing and the language used, um, because Sparky Landon, he's really mentally ill, and he's hallucinating, he's delusional, he's absolutely just in another world, and so he's describing that world with such strange language and such a strange way of expressing himself that it is sort of interesting. So you can kind of hang on through those scenes. Um, there are they're a little difficult, um, and so he is most assuredly a villain. Um, there are some tiny moments through the madness where he might have an opportunity to be redeemable, but for the most part, he is just like this monstrous part of Scott's life that really um, contributes to the darkness that Scott faces in his life, um, and his marriage with Lisi, It's the reason why he abuses alcohol. He's got a really strong alcohol problem that he hides from Lisi. Um, it's the reason why his books are so dark and frightening. And he, um, he assumes this is why he, he assumes that his dark writing, um, brings out the darkness in people and his fans. And then um, the other thing is that the darkness from his childhood makes him tell Lisi that he can never be a father. He never wants to have children because he feels haunted um, literally and metaphorically because of his past. And then there's a little bit of a connection to the monster called the long boy in Booyah Moon. So um, Scott feels as though he's being hunted and he can never be a father. And so Lisey makes a lot of sacrifices um, for him and their love and Sparky Landon's connected to that for sure. Um, So there's some some very harrowing flashback scenes, but uh, hold on to the language aspect of it to get through because that's, sort of the the artistic branch that I held on to that kind of got me through it as I was just looking at it as um a creative exploration so to speak um the other small but very large character um Paul is his deceased brother he is on the screen for very little but um uh, makes a big impact so I really enjoyed Paul's presence and um, there's there's a lot of sadness associated with Paul, but, um, there's, there's also a lot of light and hope connected to that as well. So Paul's character, um, somebody that is definitely worth an honorable mention. What I love in, in Stephen King novels is oftentimes the ones who don't have a lot of time on the page really sort of give you that, lingering focus. You think about them a lot just because even though they are not described too much, they their presence becomes essential. And that's, I think, the core of this novel is about love and those who love us in the shadows. And Lisi is a perfect example of always being in the shadows, waiting for Scott, supporting Scott, loving Scott. And so Paul, the big brother to Scott, you know, he doesn't get a lot of time in the spotlight. Um, and when he does, it's usually in a negative way, but, um, Stephen King does a really great job of, you know, making amazing main characters that are rich and complex and dynamic. And then there's also some, some supporting cast that, um, make a big impact, even though they're not there very long, And so that's why I feel Under the Dome is such a success. Um, If you haven't listened to episodes three and four, please do. Because even though there's a lot of characters in Under the Dome, um, there's some important ones, even though they're not on screen for very long. Um, So my other, um, so for my hero I want to talk about is Scott. And the reason why I bring him up is because we never really get Scott alive in this novel. We only have him in memory or flashback or as a sort of ethereal voice from from beyond, sort of speaking to Lisi, guiding her. He speaks through Lisi's sister at one point. Um, So Scott is a really dynamic character because in the flashbacks, we see him as a very tormented soul, someone who is just a victim of of a lot of pain and sadness, and he's trying to make the best of it. Somebody who maybe has some mystical power as he's able to transport, teleport himself and Lisi to a magical escape. Um, And, uh, and then he's also, you know, um, just somebody who loves Lisi and loved her very well in, in life and in death. Uh, I think he's continuing to love her, which is pretty special, uh, even from beyond. So Scott for me is most definitely a hero. And then, um, Lisi. is tremendous guys. And I think that, um, I would love having read this book and having spent some time with Lisi and seeing how brave she is and, uh, everything that she has to handle in this space. I really, uh, feel she's a bit of a superhero and you could tell, um, watching interviews with Steve, uh, after Lisi's story was published, I think he likes her a lot too. And I think she should be, more of a star than holly gibney um not knocking holly gibney i like her i just lisey is great she's um not your typical hero but she is a hero and she takes her broken heart and she is she takes the trauma that happens to her and she keeps putting one foot in front of the other she's strong she's brave she's very, very um, smart. And I would love to see her in a a story or I want Lacey back. Um, She had to really be strong and put up with a lot with a husband as fragile as Scott. And she, she did an amazing job and she's, she's great. And I think that it really makes you look at, you know, AARP members maybe <laughs> in a different way in terms of like these people are pretty cool. And that's another thing, um I might have mentioned earlier uh, in another episode, I love how Stephen King writes senior citizens. Um, The older the better. The older they are, the more charming he makes them. The more that they shine bright and have hysterical awesome dialogue lines and these zingers and they're great and Lisi's a really awesome character. She's wonderful and I encourage you to go on this journey with her just to see a really strong lady come to life and really reflect on on her life in a beautiful way. So let's make a transition to what's working in the novel and what's not. <laughs> All right. So what's working here uh, that I feel is doing well is um, narrative structure. So we've got a lot of past and present throughout this book. Um, So I really feel that's done very well. As trippy as this book is, as advanced and sort of difficult to dig your feet into, um, once you get in the rhythm, the narration is pretty cool. Uh, I think that the transitions from present-day Lisi to past Lisi before she met Scott to early married times to um to going to Booyah Moon I all of that is done really really well so definitely look at this novel for uh narration and transitions for sure what I feel is not working in this text or what falls a little flat for me is the character of Amanda. Amanda is Lisi's sister and she she is featured pretty prominently throughout this story but I just don't know if she's working for me in terms of um I don't know so Amanda is when we meet her she's struggling with she's she's also struggling with mental illness she's self-harming and they find it best to just put her in an institution, um, which uh, I don't know if I mentioned this is a Castle Rock story. So this story takes place in Castle Rock. And so they put her inside an institution just to monitor her and take care of her. But what happens is she just goes full-blown catatonic. Like she just stops speaking. And so she... When she encounters uh, Lisey, there's just a lot of flatness, I think, with Amanda. Um, she does end up in Booyah Moon, and so there's a little bit of validation of what Booyah Moon is and what it can do for not just Scott and Lisey, but for others as well. So that part was pretty cool, um, but I, I... Mm, I also, being an old, the oldest sibling, I just felt really bad for Lisi because she's already has so much on her plate taking care of Scott, the aftermath of life without Scott. And now she has another sister to take care of. And Lisi is one of six sisters, I believe. So she has five, five, she's one of six. So she has five sisters that, you know, she's just sort of juggling and trying to take care of and... I felt Amanda was a very taxing presence and I don't know how much she added to the story other than validating Booyah Moon. I don't know. Um, this is something that I would love to hear from you guys about. Like maybe I missed something with Amanda. Maybe um, there was something about her and her connection to Lisi that I may have missed. So please let me know um, what you think in terms of maybe Amanda is much more important than I realize. I was happy that once Booyah Moon occurred to Amanda, there was some positive change but um, and I was happy that Lisi wasn't alone in the tail end of the story but I guess I would wish that something else could have happened with Amanda. So that falls a little flat for me. Um, The second um, thing that I don't feel is working for me or I wish was done in a different way is Scott's death. And I'm not going to say what it is or how it happens, but I assumed going into the novel that oh it was cancer or it was a tragic accident and it's none of those things and I feel that I don't understand why it happened and it it's upsetting because it does have a connection to the mystical slash magical And when, because of that, I struggle in my reader's mind is like, okay, well then there must be some solution. There must be some way to fix it, to turn it around, to take it back. And so maybe that was, I guess, a tool to make it more painful and more um, somber for the reader, but I just felt that it wasn't working. I could understand and feel a little bit more, feel the permanence of death if it was, in a you know a more conventional way but it's not and so I struggle with that I struggle as I'm reading the story especially when we find out what it is which thankfully isn't until later on in the novel that I'm like what why 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 did that happen like isn't there something that could have been done or or something you know like clearly this is you know I it it just happens fast it's Yeah, so Scott's death is something that I feel is not working, or maybe I just wish it was better. Um, I'm not sure, so... Uh, that's what I that's what I have uh, for that chunk of the story of what's working well and what's not. So as I kind of mentioned previously, we're going to round out Lisi's story with just some final thoughts and uh, some recap. This is such a cool story, guys. But uh, I feel, as I mentioned previously, it is a more advanced reading experience. I think that this book. Re- in my opinion i think you do need to be an advanced reader for it um or you know just somebody who is patient with a kind of cerebral strange text Um, What I do highly recommend is getting the audiobook version. Um, Mare Winningham, the actress, is the author of this novel. She, or pardon me, not the author of the novel. She is the narrator of the story um, for the audiobook. She does a tremendous job, guys. And fun fact, if you guys have seen HBO's The Outsider, um, she is... Ralph Emerson's wife, Jeannie. So she's in that show. So there's kind of a cool connection there. But she brings this book to life in such an amazing way. And I think it really helped me uh, see the power behind it, see the art um, with her theatrical expression of it. She does an amazing job. So please get the audiobook companion um, as a way to bring the novel to life. I think you'll really, really enjoy it. I do think you should go along with the journey. It is the coolest, strangest book that I've read from Stephen thus far in terms of, usually when you pick up a Stephen King novel, it's just you're instantly whisked away, whether it's out of curiosity or out of, um, you know, suspense or the thrill, or just a really beautifully written character, but this one is a little trickier. There's a lot going on. The language is very puzzling. There's um, definitely uh, a lot of question marks as you're going into the text, but overall, this story is about is about love. It's about love and marriage and long-term marriage. And I did want to read you this beautiful little paragraph um, on the back of 332 that really broke my heart in a great way. And uh, I think definitely signifies why um, this book is worth the uphill climb. That was her voice, but it was almost his, a very good imitation. So Lisi closed her eyes and felt the first warm tears, almost comforting, slip out through the screen of lashes. There was a lot they didn't tell you about death, she had discovered, and one of the biggies was how long it took the ones you loved most to die in your heart it's a secret lacy thought and it should be because who would ever want to get close to another person if they knew how hard the letting go part was in your heart they only die a little at a time don't they like a plant when you go away on a trip and forget to ask a neighbor to poke in once in a while with the old watering can and it's so sad So that was on page 332 and I loved that part because I think it just brings it home of this story is a love story, a strange Stephen King labyrinth love story with a lot of fantastical, strange things happening in it as well as a lot of intimidating language patterns and code, but it's about those people who love us in the shadows and who are essential to our lives. And that's something that really makes my heart just happy and sad at the same time because it makes you look at long married couples or long-term relationships as, you know, how they, the you, me, and the us. And it's the us that survives and thrives and is this own unique, beautiful thing. And so I loved that and that's the, it's very poignant. And I also think that reading this book having Stephen King quote it as the his best written you definitely get to see sort of a a very close intimate side of him I think Um, what he treasures most what all of us on the planet treasure most is our family and our loved ones and even though he says this isn't about Tabitha you know there's all writers write about themselves in a small, small way. So I'd like to see what you think in terms of what you notice about, you know, th- this is a guy who really, really loves his wife and has had a beautiful, long marriage with her and uh, and all the ups and downs and craziness and terrors in between. So I really enjoyed this book uh, for uh, many, many reasons. But as I mentioned at the beginning, please. Um, advise your friends, if they have not read Stephen King, to maybe not start with Lacey's story. Start with something else. Start with a short story collection. I'm going to talk about everything's eventual here pretty soon. Um, So start with a short story collection. Um, Save this for once you're like minimum 10 books in, I think or um duct tape his name off the off the book um because i would hate for somebody to read this novel having never read steve before and just say that it was Awful and because it's possible, guys. This one's tricky. This one's a tricky one. Um, I would love to hear from you, uh, especially when this book finally reaches the screen and we're able to see um, Julianne Moore as Lisey, So that's going to be exciting. I'll be sure to do some coverage on that whenever that goes down. Um, please write in at uh, underratedsk at gmail and let me know your thoughts on this one. This one is polarizing. I think a lot of people are hot and cold about Lisey's story, but I think it's worth the journey. It's worth exploring. I'd love to hear your thoughts. So thank you guys so, so much for hanging out with me. And I will catch you later.